a Highline podcast. This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Hello, hello, hello. I don't know why I need to say it three times, but hello. Well, <laughs> hello, hello, hello. On RuPaul's Drag Race, that's how he greets the the queens. Hello, hello, hello. Oh. So every time you say hello, hello, I just think of RuPaul. <laughs> oh, that's nice. All right. Well, I'll claim it. We'll roll with it. Yes. Amazing. Hey, it's good to talk to you guys again. Hey, you yeah. too. Hey, thanks. Always. Uh, tell me what you're drinking, please. I made a... I thought I was going to make myself a mocktail, but then I put a splash of gin in there. So it is now not a mocktail. (laughs) I combined, I bought one of these like aha bubbly drinks. Uh, But this one is like a green tea lemon one that has some caffeine in it because of the green tea. And then I put some orange bitters and some lemon juice in with like just a small splash splash of gin. Wow. And it's pretty good. It's very refreshing. Love it. You always make good combos. Yeah, it's good. I'm usually, I'm used to like citrusy cocktails being like mezcal or tequila, but this one, like, I can definitely taste like the herbalness in there. Have which you ever is nice. thought if you'd never pursued coffee as like a job or a career or a passion about being a bartender? You know, I thought about it. It's very intriguing. Uh, I think there's a lot of aspects I would like, and I think there's also a lot of aspects I would not like. So mm, probably okay. won't. <laughs> okay. But it's fun. What about you, Emily? What are you drinking? I So I have a coffee shop here uh, in Cody, Rawhide Coffee. They know Alex and I by name. They have our orders memorized. And so I have to like change the orders. Yeah. Um, And so my newest concoction that I've been doing since I gave up caffeine for Lent, I do decaf espresso. And I do, it's a coconut lavender Mm. latte. And it is spot on. It is so good. Really? Yes, I know it sounds really bizarre, okay. but coconut and lavender, yeah. Even you like taste, the bur- does it still taste like coffee, or is it is it like too in your face at all? Or no, 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 no. It's a great balance, especially with the decaf. It's a great balance, and even the barista like looked at me and she made some for herself and tried it. And she was like, "You're good. I don't know what it is, but you're good." <laughs> so, weird. Sometimes you is- find those weird combos. You do, yeah. It was really a roll of the dice, so. Nice. I'm so glad it worked out, though. I like lavender in drinks. I cannot stand coconut. Anything coconut is terrible Same. to me. So you would not like this one, then? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. But just the lavender would be good, yeah. Uh, Yeah, agreed. I am drinking the second best LaCroix flavor ever. Tangerine. Um, <laughs> nope. This is, oh. I mean, clearly this is my opinion on second best, but I am drinking the <laughs> hibiscus LaCroix. Ooh. I really ooh. like this Got one. Got to be kidding me. It's, what? <laughs> There's no way that's your second. It's my second. Why oh. can't it be his second, Josh? 
we'll we'll talk about this off mic. Just be happy it's not his first. No, we'll no, no. We'll take this outside. Confront a brother in public who is <laughs> continuing to stumble. <laughs> hey, if you're going to point out the speck in his eye, Josh, just look to the log in your own eye, okay? He's the one that's got a freaking log in his eye. Yeah, okay. whatever, Mr. Tangerine. Are you kidding <laughs> yeah. me? Okay, boys. So okay, boys. <laughs> okay, we can at least agree that coconut is the worst. I will still love you, even though you have terrible opinions. <laughs> wow. Hey, actually, that's a fantastic segue that I'm not sure if you that intended. That was very good. But, um, that was very good. This episode, this topic is brought to us by our friend Tyler from the Patreon group. Yeah, yep. Yeah, we're just talking. We're, it's all about love today. So thank you Aww. for still loving me through my wrong opinions, Josh. But I, I think we should go ahead and get kicked off with Tyler's question, shall we? Let's do it. Hello. My name is Tyler Talbert, and I'm from Northwest Ohio, and my question today has to do with the concept of love. What is love? If love is supposed to be the center of Christian faith, why do Christians often perform logical acrobatics to get out of loving those around them? Being brutally honest with someone and telling them they're going to hell for whatever perceived sin is considered love in the circles that I've been around. Because, quote, it would be unloving to just let them go to hell without me telling them that they're a sinner, unquote. Love gets so twisted that giving a hungry person food is considered unloving because you're just giving them a handout. But Jesus called us to do little things with great love saying that it is love to give a thirsty person a glass of water. I want to know about your own experiences with how love has been twisted or redefined or just kind of ignored in uh, deference to other things in order to make it fit the American cultural milieu. Also, and this is a little bit more uh, probably personal, I don't know if anyone else has experienced this kind of teaching, but whenever the passage about God being love, God is love in First John, uh, there would always be a caveat put with it in the circles that I was taught in of God is love, but love is not God. I'm really not sure what they're afraid of in that example, um, but lately I got wondering like, why not? Why shouldn't love be God? So also your thoughts on that would be really cool. But I'm just curious to hear your experiences with how love has been twisted and changed and redefined. Thank you all. Wow. Thanks, Tyler. That is, those are some really um, good questions in there. First off, the first question, what is love like? Talk about a mic drop of a question. Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> Sorry. I thought the same thing. I couldn't <laughs> help myself. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. Actually, I, I really liked his like progression of questioning because I think that like starting with the definition as a question is brilliant because like so many people, especially in theology, just use different definitions. I was like listening to a podcast about a psychologist the other day and they were talking about how he just like flips definitions and like how that's like really unfair to do if you're like trying to make a point. And I feel like it totally happens with love. So I feel like that is a great place to start. 
I don't know how to define love. <laughs> like, how would you like? <laughs> Part of me wants to be like all flowery with it and be like, it's like the outpouring of oneself to another person. But like, what does that mean? I would say, I think you could define love as a selfless act that betters someone else. Hmm. I like that. But that's also very like instance focused versus like long term focused. Why why couldn't it be long term focused though? No, I think it could be. Like how would you define it like with a long term emphasis? I think that definition does though. Because the selfless act could be long term. Yeah, it could be con- it it should be continuous. Like it should be instant as well as long term. You know, like <laughs> like when I say I love you to someone in that instant, I love them and I'm also telling them that that's going to continue. Like, that's not just this one one time. Mm. And I think if we are to love, like, our neighbors or love our enemies, like, it is instant as well as long-term. At least it should be. What is love? What a question. I, <laughs> hmm. Love is patient. Okay. Love is kind. I love it when people try to, like, quote that passage as if it's, like, self-explanatory, but it's, like, you're you're just describing it. Yeah, you're not defining, you're describing. Like love is not patience. Love is mm. not kindness. Love is patient and it's kind. I feel like I I really like that passage and I think it's really beautiful because I also think that despite Christians loving to talk about like the four loves or like God is love or like love is not God, like as like as semantic as Christians can get about it, like Tyler was talking about, I think that that passage is really it feels very universal, like towards romantic love or friendship love or religious love or. Yeah, I think it also shows the complexity of love that it's not like I think love can be simple, but I think love itself is very complex and very. I don't want to say difficult, but I think it can be when especially when you read scripture like to love your enemy, you know, and like the scripture. Uh, turn the other cheek you know to to give your coat and your and your shirt and i i keep thinking back to what i preached on last week when we were uh recording and my sermon was about what the phrase means to turn the other cheek and i was talking about that in reference to love and i'm still wrestling with that because mm. i think we often see love as being passive and the idea of loving your enemy means you have to like submit and you know if oh if you're turning the other cheek that means allowing them to hit you on the other side or whatever and that's not what that means at all love is bold like it's not meant to be passive it's actually very aggressively firm and solid and it's difficult love is a weird one because i feel like it's like the idea of love is very compelling and i personally I think that Jesus's idea of loving your neighbors yourself and loving your enemies is extremely compelling. Um, yeah, especially when you look at the phrase like to turn the other cheek. We think it means, oh, yeah, I'm going to allow, you know, I'm going to turn the other cheek. That means like, again, like being submissive or or allowing them to just trample over you. Like, I don't know why people think that, but they do. Well, wait, um, how do you how are you interpreting that? What what different perspective do you have? Well, so to turn the other cheek, you have to realize first what they mean in the literal sense of like being slapped. So when 
a master would slap a servant or a slave, oftentimes to be submissive, like to get them into shape, whatever the case may be, they would use the back of their hand and they would use the back of their right hand predominantly because the left hand oftentimes was used for unclean purposes. So like going to the bathroom, blowing your nose, whatever the case may be. And so when the phrase turn the other cheek, you're putting them in the situation of, okay, you're now forcing me to either slap you with my unclean hand or to slap you with the palm of my right hand as if you're an equal. Oh. It has nothing to do with like, oh, yes, I, I submit to you. Okay, you've slapped me on this cheek. You might as well have the other. No, like you're forcing the person to choose. You either see me as an equal or how dare you try to slap me with an unclean hand. I feel like that's really interesting, especially because that's usually paired with the go the extra mile example. Mm -hmm. And like how like going the extra mile beyond what the Roman soldier could force you to. Like I've always thought of that as such a power move and I've never thought about the turning the other cheek thing as a power move. But you're right. Yeah. It's totally like because of the like voluntary nature of it mm -hmm. makes it like it like forces the other person to see the humanity in you. Exactly. And so like with loving your enemy, it's one thing if we're the ones being slapped, but it's another if we're the ones doing the slapping. So that was what I preached on. And it was a lot of people were really struck by it. Struck by it. Okay, okay, I did not mean to say that. On the other um, cheek? On the other cheek. But it really, when you take that with the concept of love, like, it should be compelling. It should be a power move. Like, we really need to think about what do we mean when we say, love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemy? Because it's not just passive. And it's not just simply caving in or, or submitting and completely abandoning, like, who you are. For the sake of the yes. other, like... <laughs> yes, I would completely agree with that. Like, I think a lot of people, uh, unfortunately, take the stance of, like, loving someone else means, like, depreciating yourself. Right. Whereas, like, and Jesus, like, I think, I would argue, says the opposite when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Like, he's not using modern language like self-care, but I, I think he's implying that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Absolutely. Okay. Stephen, what do you think about this definition that Emily and I are, like, going back and forth with? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I think the most compelling thing that Emily has brought so far is the idea that we are mistaken if we think love in any way has an element of passivity and that mm. it is like it's engaged, it's action. Mm. And and that's what I like about saying even in the short term it's a selfless act that affirms someone builds them up or betters them even in a tangible way right the love mm -hmm. of giving someone hungry something to eat yeah and then in the long-term way i'm just kind of thinking about how singular acts of love over a long period of time begin to more or less define like a way of being mm. call mm. it habitual or yeah i don't know what else you would say but it's like it it's love is becoming integrated in me in such a way that to do to to take a loving action almost becomes the default. And that's that's always what I think of when people say, like, you know, talk about becoming a disciple of Christ or following Jesus in some meaningful way is like I am through the aid of Christ and then through the aid of tools like scripture. It's like I am forming myself into a person who 
acts in love by default rather than some of the more self-centered urges that I normally mm-hmm. have, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you think that love requires sacrifice? Because mm-hmm. I've, I've heard that phrase oh, yeah. tossed around in Christian circles a lot, and I'm intrigued by it, but I also think it's very generalizing. I think, well, I guess it depends on, like, wh- I don't want to say how you define sacrifice, but, like, I guess I would say yes. And the first example that came to my mind is, like, having a child like I love Thea and I sacrifice so much already and I like I'm going to continue that and I think I've I've been thinking about the sacrifices that I've made because I love my child but I think when we think of sacrifice we think of letting go or like abandoning or shedding something in order for something good to to come up from it so you know, you would sacrifice time or money, time or... or money. And we think that that's a bad thing, though, for love to prosper. But I don't think that's the case. Like we always frame we always frame it in a negative way, like, oh, I've sacrificed all this time and money and effort into love or or for you. Like we we spin it in a way that's negative. Yes. Maybe that's why I don't like it, because like I don't disagree that there's costs to love, but like Mm -hmm. sacrifice has such a like weird connotation for it. And I feel like anytime someone talks about love being sacrifice, it's almost always trying to like reorient the conversation back to Jesus, which is maybe not the worst thing to do. But like, (laughs) but how I don't know, like like I'm reminded of the passage where Jesus is talking about like no greater love has someone for his friends than the person who lays down his life. <laughs> Says the guy who then <laughs> goes and dies for his friends, quote unquote. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like it like it almost feels like it could be potentially potentially? It feels like <laughs> it could be potentially Oh my God. <laughs> it feels like it could be manipulative. Like mm-hmm. I sacrificed all this time for you. What are you gonna do about it? Yeah, but that's right. I don't, hmm, I would quibble with that being true sacrifice and not just transactionalism. Because if you're, mm. if you're going to rest on, well, I gave up this much, how, why haven't you yet? Or I, I'm owed this from you because I sacrificed this for you or something. It's like, I, I, it's all a question of motive mm. at that point. And I think your motive for like, more or less banking on a transaction is sure. betrayed if you start using phrases like that to guilt someone else into now making a sacrifice for you. Alternatively, I don't think it's wrong for love to be transactional. Like, in fact, I think that if there is a significant power balance that does not that is not mutually beneficial in near equal amounts, I would argue that that is not a loving relationship. Like, we do not have a loving relationship to the government. You might love America, but, like, mm. the government controls a lot. Mm. Like, some people would say, like, they love the church. Mm, no, maybe that's not the best example. Like, I don't know. We've talked about it on here before. I don't remember what episode, but, like, my thoughts on, like, the inherent transactional nature of generosity and that, like, that, like, transactional doesn't mean it's, like, fake and in a lot of instances can indicate safety sure so 
Yeah. But I would I would also I would argue that like transactional nature and love doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. Does that sound more like an investment then? It's like I put this in now for a return on this later. I, I think it get tricky. I think it's tricky because like if you really do love, like you shouldn't expect anything in return. Like mm. I love my child and like I hope that my child would love me, but I'm not expecting like I'm not gonna be just waiting around being like, okay, Theo, like it's your turn to love me. Like I've done all this for you. Now it's your turn. Like cough it up. Um I think it's when we create a space where guilt can enter in, then it's not truly love. Ooh. And I think that's where it gets tricky because if you say, like, oh, I've devoted all this time and money, you're starting to create a place where guilt can come in. And if the person or people or whatever entity is starting to feel guilty because of what you have done for them, then you're not really acting out of love. Hmm. I honestly get why Christians like invent weird framing around love because it's like, it's so complex. It touches virtually every part of our lives because we are relational beings. It gets really intricate and complicated in social institutions, especially the church. And -hmm. then on top of that, we have like, the interpretation of this 2,000-year-old text that uses love in four different ways, at least. Yeah. And we follow a man who taught to love our enemies and love our neighbors, but love our enemies more, question mark? <laughs> mm. I can see why it gets really complicated. Like, even just now in this, like, initial conversation about, like, defining, it's mm-hmm. so easy to, like, and I don't think we're wrong for doing this, but but it's, like, so easy to, like, rabbit trail down like well like like what about the transactional nature of love or like what about expectations or what about like it? it's like one of those words that's used so much in theology that i feel like it's often talked about it like it's simple but it's so nuanced mm-hmm. what are to uh copy tyler's question what are some of the ways that you've seen the church or christians talk about love in different ways or confusing ways or healthy ways. Mm. I think to bring it back to you, because you were quoting first Corinthians 13 earlier, Josh, Mm. I think the way that passage will go through, like love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not brag or boast, you know, like I have often heard that epic part of Paul's letter there to essentially be saying like, if you need something to hang your hat on here, uh, the symptoms of love will be patience in your life or kindness offered to others or humility, not bragging or boasting about yourself or your accomplishments. You know, those are more like symptoms mm-hmm. than trying to say what love is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Emily, I really liked your point about guilt and I'm like still thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Cause honestly, the first thing, that my mind went to was like church volunteering, even though that was not the exact example you were talking about. That's a great example though. I also think that going back to your point about expectation, I think that it's, hmm. Nope. I need to think about that some more. I thought I had a point about love and expectation, (laughs) but I'm like still mulling it over. Can you say more about like your thoughts on the relationship between love and guilt? And like, I'm still thinking about that and I'm not sure I have a thought on it yet. Um, so I know just like me personally, 
it can be easy when you love someone like I love my husband and I love my daughter and I love my family and it can be easy to say you know I've done all these things because I love you I will continue to do all these things for you but there's a fine balance to saying I've done all these things for you and I've done all these things for you and now I'm going to make you feel guilty like for the person who's hearing those things to now be put in a position where they're hearing oh my gosh, they've done all these things and they didn't have to, but they did. And now they're expecting this and I haven't done that. I now feel guilty and I'm I'm now obligated to satisfy their needs or acknowledge all the sacrifice that they've made out of love. And I can either do that or I can say to that person, well, you didn't have to do that. No one asked you to. And then that love is basically being ripped apart i've had that happen to me and it's can it can be used as a weapon it can be hurtful to hear you know i love i've I've loved you i've done all these things for you why can't you just do this for me why can't you do the same for me and when it becomes a tool of manipulation and fear and guilt then it's not really love um and it can take a lot of time to heal from that and to and you start to question, does this person really love me? And it can be romantic. It can be, you know, it can be with friends. It can be with family. It doesn't have to be just in one situation. But it's love, I feel like, is the thing that should bring people together. And that sounds very cheesy. I am aware of that. But I think <laughs> it is also the thing that is used and weaponized the most. Ugh, yeah. Like, even just as you were talking about that, I feel like a lot of times the lines get blurred because of similar language between like asking for reciprocity and your needs being met mm-hmm. versus like guilting someone mm-hmm. into a relationship that they are not into. Yeah. Like, I've, def- I've definitely seen that happen both personally and to other people. I also think that I've seen Christians use the, that like a very similar logic for being a Christian. Like, Jesus loved you so much that he sacrificed his life, even though he came back to life and he's still alive. And so that wasn't permanent. But you should love him back because he did that for you. Mm. And I think that's really dangerous apologetic. (laughs) Like, that is that sets Mm. people up for abusive relationships and just like a not good psychology of love, I think. Yeah, that is very, that can be toxic very quickly. And it's all on guilt. Like that's that's man. Talk about feel guilty, you know, because then you're setting up the expectation of Jesus died and rose again. Like you need to love Jesus just as much. You're now telling the person like you need to essentially die and find a way to come back better than who you are. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. well, and since you can't die for Jesus. Well, yeah. So you either better die for Jesus or you better live for Jesus. Mm -hmm. Isn't that kind of what Jesus asks for? But not out of guilt. Well, sure. But he tells his disciples that, you know, to like find your life, you have to lose it. You got to pick up your cross and suffer this, you know. But not out of guilt. That's the thing. It's not, I'm doing this for you, so you better do the same for me or else. It's. It's more like inspiring. Yeah. (laughs) Join me kind of thing. Yeah. And it should be like, hey, I'm carrying this weight too, you know, like. 
it's not I'm not just asking you to do it because it's like I want you to I want you to see and understand, but not out of guilt. Mm. Okay, this might be a good time to talk about Tyler's point about like so many Christians not just like logicking their way out of love in a very like simple act of love, but also like the logic of it is loving for me to tell you that like you are wrong or you are like going to hell or that you're not a Christian. Oh yeah. I think that's really interesting. Well, on that note, Tyler actually has some more thoughts. Oh, (gasps) that he asked me to share additionally. This is a first. I know he's kind of breaking the mold here, but I'm ready for it. I, Let's do it. I was really excited by the idea. So some more thoughts from Tyler here. So I wanted to give a few of my thoughts on this concept of love, question of love. I didn't really think this out as much as I thought about the question, but I know I've been in a lot of different Christian circles in my Christian upcoming in the past 12 years that they often consider theological correctness to be really more important than any kind of practice that you're in. So for one of my very close college roommates, um, he was highly reformed, now goes to or possibly works at a fundamentalist church. Like Making sure someone is theologically correct is the greatest form of love to him. Even if, in his own words that the goal of apologetics is to crush the foundation of another person's worldview so that you can present them with Jesus. That particular conversation might have been the first time that I realized that we don't agree about what love is. There also seemed to be a kind of trepidation about trusting one's instincts about what it means to be loving, that this sort of dichotomy that I don't think is brought up in the Bible, that there's this worldly concept of love that is the wrong kind of love, and then there's our kind of love that's based on the Bible and biblical teaching and your pastor and whatever. But I don't think that's necessarily founded in the Bible. I think that there's a couple of guidelines that I've come across in my time that for what what is loving. And in philosophy, we talk about love as flourishing, that a love for another person is a desire to see them flourish. And it makes me think a lot of how Emily talks about being life-giving, is this this image almost of a garden or a flower coming fully into its own. And I think in my own experiences with other people that even when I was most entrenched in evangelicalism, and I would like try to quote unquote evangelize. I was never very good at it because what I would do is I would sit down with someone and they would talk to me about what they were going through. And rather than like telling them, here's the ways that Jesus can answer all of your problems. Like if I didn't think that Jesus could, then I would just seek to understand them. And I think that one of the most fundamental ways to love someone is to try to understand them. Everyone wants to be known and to know each other. And so seeking to understand someone not only shows them that you love them, but it can show you something outside of yourself. 
And that was always a very encouraging thing to hear. Like in my first week at college, when I had a friend that I would talk to and walk around with and like go to all the college orientation events with. And she said, I feel like you wouldn't care if I told you that I was an atheist. And I was like, no. And then realized that, oh, she's an atheist and she feels comfortable with me. And that, that didn't really matter too much to me. Like if, if someone else is finding their flourishing somewhere other than the faith that I've found, is that not loving to just let them flourish? But that's just some of my own thoughts. Wow. I think that's a, that's a really common thing in American Christianity. I've definitely encountered that. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that it's more loving to correct someone than to either understand or act towards them. Yeah. Like, I hate to be uh, like too biblically literal about this, but like Jesus often only corrected the people in power and to the people who were suffering or even according to Jewish law sinning, he did not offer correction. Mm -hmm. He offered support and care. And I really like that picture of uh, like caring for a garden. (laughs) It feels very biblical. (laughs) Well, and I really like even that imagery with what Tyler was saying about wanting to understand. Like if you're going to garden, you need to understand what you're gardening, like what you're planting, the needs of the plants, the needs of, you know, its environment. Um, You can't you wouldn't plant something that wouldn't grow. You know, and if it's a plant that maybe grows better in the dark versus the light, does it need a certain amount of water? Like you need to understand if you're wanting it to flourish. You can't just neglect or assume or, you know, put in your your thoughts heavily on how this plant should grow when it's not how it should grow. To understand someone, you have to see someone. And that means you need to see them as human and as worthy and essential. And I think once we do that, then we want to. That's the thing. It's not enough just to understand. I think we should want to understand people. Like, I think we should have this longing to want to know more about someone. Mm. We just want to say how honored we are that you listen to Ravel. Seriously, there's a lot of great shows out there, and we're grateful to be in your feed. Thank you for helping us on our journey to normalize people asking questions about theology. If you want to support what we're doing, the best way to help is to tell a friend about us. We want to be a resource for people on their faith journeys, whether they're deconstructing, reconstructing, switching churches, deconverting, and everything in between. And if you're able, you can support us for as little as $3 a month on our Patreon. Supporting us helps us cover fees, software, equipment, future ideas, and more. For all of you church finance skeptics out there like me, don't worry, we're keeping an open book for transparency. For our supporters, we've built an online space where we can be together. We know it can be difficult to ask questions about our faith, so we want to make that more accessible, comfortable, and normal. We're using an app called Discord, where you'll get private access. You already know us, and we'd love to get to know you. Thank you to everyone who's already supporting, and thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music, In Full Color. 
Ravel is a founding podcast of the Heinlein Media Network. And here's a word from one of our sister shows, No Normal People. And so then other things like I plant fruit-bearing shrubs and trees in my local park because no one takes care of the park. So I trimmed the hedges and pulled out dead shrubs and replaced them with blueberries and salvias and other things like that. Wow, that's so cool. What like what got you started on that? Like you just noticed a park not being taken care of and you're like, I know someone who could take care of that. And it's yep. me. Yep. Wow. Now, we live a block away from this park that's, it's small enough that the local parks district doesn't even list it on its website, which I thought was really strange. Oh, yeah. But like it has a, a sign and like landscaping stuff there. And hmm. right. so like we've lived here for a couple of years and like noticing over the years that just like no one takes care of this stuff. There's like they don't trim the hedge that's there there is a walnut tree growing up through it which i'm doing my best to save and it is doing well so we've got a couple volunteers there and it's just crazy to me that no one has ever like seen you do this and like oh yeah because i don't do it under the cover of night or anything like like no one from the city is like like why are you doing Josh, you know how the first miracle of Jesus is pretty famously him turning water into wine at a wedding? Yeah, I mean, that's if he existed, but yes, continue. Uh, Well, I also find in scripture that we are told that we are empowered to do greater things even than this. And I think he probably meant turning water into delicious coffee. Okay, sure, but that implies that he would have been using instant coffee, and I think we all know that Jesus was an AeroPress man. Oh, great point. So what that means is that we can also do this. We can grow in the miracle of coffee, whether it's pour over, whether it's a quick morning espresso or a French press. Guess what? We sell coffee. Yes. And you can order it directly from our website. That's highline.network forward slash shop. What strikes me about that thought is that it's not one size fit all. I think within a paradigm of uh, theology where it's important that you have all your theological boxes checked in order for us to be in a community and in order for us to love each other to the fullest, at least according to people like that. Some of those theologies would say like the people who don't understand this are literally destined to be tortured forever. And I guess within that paradigm, doesn't it feel loving to be like, well, I'm convinced that you are doomed to hell. And of course it feels like I'm doing something if I'm going to just like present you a cookie cutter or one size fits all version of Jesus loves you. You know, I, I think it's easy to come out of the Bible with a very simplistic view of like, well, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short and therefore all need uh, justification through Christ. And therefore I'm just going to like hand out the same chick tract or give the same five minute spiel while I'm talking to people on the street or on a mission trip or whatever, because in that sense, every person is naturally going to become like, I don't know, just another uh, arrow to add to the quiver, if you will, just because it's like, 
just one by one, we're all the same in that we all sin. So we must all be the same that the, the same message of Jesus is compelling enough to lovingly convince them of their sin. And then now they're living a life with Christ. But I think the beautiful nuance to every single one of us as a human being. And I think Emily, to your point of like a true desire to understand another human being and to see them for who they are and not who you think they could be if they were on your Christian Mm -hmm. team or, Mm -hmm. or even see them today as they are now rather than the ex felon that they were and they just were released from prison or like that's, that's just an example, but it's like, to see the person in front of you for who they are and not try and attach too many stories that you are undereducated on about their lives, mm-hmm. whether their past or what you assume about their future based on certain theologies of the Christian church. I think just to sit in front of someone and I think that the, the true desire to understand them is love because you want to see them for who they are with all that complexity and the nuance and, you know, they have their own pains and their own uh, desires and their own pleasures. And of course that's, it's, uh, it's intimate to get to know someone like that because you realize that you're not all that different in the end. Mm-hmm. No normal people. And in some ways um, you are different. <laughs> Thank you, Josh, for the plug for no normal people <laughs> okay so i was just reminded of this analogy that one of my youth pastors gave me about like imagine you are in a plane and you're about to parachute out of the plane and some people don't have parachutes on wouldn't you do everything in your power to convince them to put a parachute on like your life depended on it isn't that the most loving thing to do uh, which is like a great yeah. example mm. of like mm, i feel like people like use analogies like a straw man like that is that yeah. is a very specific very specific circumstance and certainly does represent a very specific theological framework of salvation. Also, passenger planes aren't equipped with parachutes. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Okay. There's life right. Exactly. For water, but no, that's not how that works. But but also like in terms of uh love for someone, like I, I mean, we could like talk about like why that analogy like is not the best, but like I feel like there's a I lot of think of several, yeah, yeah, I can think of several. Uh, there's, I feel like there's a lot of analogizing about love in Christianity, mm-hmm. though. Like, mm-hmm. like that certainly that's not the only one I've heard. That's the only one that like came to mind. But to Tyler's point, I think people like go through these like weird logic gymnastics. But there's often like the exporting of a theological idea to a completely different analogy to like oh. explain why you have to do something a certain way instead of just talking about that thing. Like, for instance, like, Stephen, you got me thinking about that in terms of evangelizing, because that youth leader is obviously talking about evangelism. But, like, instead of just talking about, like, a theology of evangelism and sharing one's faith, you have to, like, use an analogy about immediate life and death Mm. when it's obviously not that. Yeah, Yeah, which it's, like, if you took that seriously on a theological level, like, why would you invest for retirement? Yes. Or just plan for the future. Why would you write a grocery list for next week if you think mm. the plane is literally going to crash? Like, right. that's my problem with that metaphor in particular is like it that is assuming a theology that the earth is just going down in flames. Yes, absolutely. Which 
is not, I don't like we're called to participate in the recreation of the new earth, right? Of like, and it's also very, an, in a subtle way, it's very end times focused too. Totally. It is. Yeah. 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 And to your point, Emily, I think that those types of analogies are often used to guilt people into doing something. Yes. Either yes. volunteering, giving more money, or just like guilting people into a very specific view that like you can't have any other like theological disagreement. Mm-hmm. So I thought of that. And then the other thing I wanted to like float to you guys is like the difference between one sided love and mutual love. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Because like I think that in some ways, that's what I was trying to like come to words with, with the church volunteering connection. Yeah. I think that like a lot of people think that they are in a mutual love relationship with something. And then when something changes, it's very clear that it's not mutual. Oof. Oof. <laughs> or like I've been in friendships before where like, you know, I thought I was doing the right thing. I like I saw like someone who needed support and love and a friend. And I thought I was like entering into a good friendship. And then like a little ways down the road, I was like, oh, you know, this is pretty one sided. And like, like, this is not good for me right now. Like, I'm not also getting a friend. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying every church volunteering experience is bad, because certainly like a lot of good is done there. And like people have had good experiences, but also people have had many people have had bad experiences. Like people have been told they can't volunteer anymore or like people get borderline excommunicated from the Protestant church, even though we don't believe in that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think that that's why I think the, the love in the midst of a power dynamic thing is interesting because it's like, it seems like it's a mutual relationship, but it's not equally beneficial. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Ooh. Like, could love be, like, what are the differences between like one-sided love versus like, two-sided or mutual love or is there a difference maybe there's not uh i think in order for there to be like a mutual reciprocity i don't necessarily think that means that the acts of love performed in either direction need to be somehow defined as like objectively equal in weight sure just because like I'm still very much thinking in the context of Christian theology, and I I think we've even made a joke of it already, but it's like, how would I equally and mutually die on a cross for Jesus? Like, I don't don't know how I could ever achieve that. I mean, you could be martyred. Okay, well, fair. For some people, that would feel equal. That's still, Mm. I don't know if that feels equal to me, but, huh. (laughs) I think uh, to me, it's going to come back to this concept of like understanding the person that you are entering into love with and understanding what to them is. Oh gosh. I'm about to talk about love languages. You guys, (laughs) (laughs) but like understanding the person you are engaging in love with. Yeah. Understanding what makes them feel the most valued is not necessarily what makes me feel the most valued. And I think that's so important. While there are problems with the whole paradigm of the love languages book, I think the concept at least holds true in that, you know, like I don't wait 
physical touching as as much of an act of affection from my spouse than like acts of service mm-hmm. is something I've learned about myself, right? So like, and the thing people like to talk about in terms of love languages and especially marriages is that it is easy for me as the person trying to communicate love to my spouse. It's easy for me to start speaking my love language and not choosing to speak their love language intentionally. Oof. Right. Because if, if we respond to different things, I am naturally going to like perform acts of service around the house and feel like I'm doing the most loving thing I could to demonstrate how much I love Dixie by like doing the dishes every night. Whereas for her, like quality time and physical touch matter to her the most. So she, it's like I'm speaking a language she doesn't understand and she barely even like clocks. And I mean, it, really, you're just you're loving yourself. Yeah. And it takes me (laughs) with the mindful action of saying like, okay, I understand this about her enough to, instead of doing the dishes, we're going to go sit and like drink tea together and have a quality conversation or even just like sit side by side and eat popcorn and watch a movie like that is quality time. And for me, that can feel like a waste of time, but to her, that feels like the most natural form of love is to just spend time with the person she loves you know Mm -hmm. so for that mutuality to happen i think it does come down to understanding the individual or i i mean i guess understanding the community into which you are entering into love with Mm -hmm. but i think it's one-sided if you are just going to assume that yeah i i'm back to the cookie cutter thing right like the one size fits all version of love i think is the version that becomes one-sided very quickly yeah i think it becomes one-sided if you frame the intention of your action to be is this what i would want like if you are ultimately turning the reflection back on you that's one-sided so like steven your example of doing the dishes every night that's a great example because like your intention was good right but you were also thinking like this is my love language this is what, like, I would love, I would love it if, you know, the person that loved me would do these things or whatever the case may be. Exactly. So when you're framing it back to what you would want, not what does this person want, that's one-sided. Mm-hmm. Again, your intentions could be good. You could be doing something out of love, but if you're framing it back to what you would want out mm-hmm. of it, it's one-sided. It's so not mutual. Is that how you hear the phrase love your neighbor as yourself though? No. Cause I think like Josh, you spoke to it, that feeling kind of like self care or like, I mean, I, I know it's kind of framed into the golden rule of like treat others the way you want to be treated, but why don't, why isn't it just treat others the way they want to be treated? <laughs> I think, I think it's because, <laughs> That's a good point. I think it's because we don't want to examine ourselves because we're so good at pointing out the faults and the flaws of other people and not our own. And so when we say treat others the way you want to be treated, we're asking the individual to be patient with us and be kind with us. And yeah, it's like how like how would you treat yourself? Right. Well, yeah, you would you would be patient and kind to yourself. So you should do that to others as well. So more on the high level concepts of Mm -hmm. just like being a decent person. Yeah. Is love. I really liked Tyler's example of a friend telling him that they're atheists. Like, and I like the way he kind of frames that in like, 
look, who am I to judge where they are finding flourishing in their life? Yeah. And is it not the most loving thing for me to encourage them to go down the path in which they are finding the most life? Because again, what's life giving for you may not necessarily be life giving for the Mm. other person. So, right. But like that is totally like from that person's theological framework, that's like unheard of. Like I've totally met people like that. Yeah. That's just subjectivism. Like, no, that, that doesn't count. Like, I think that that's the kind of person that would absolutely agree with that airplane analogy. Yeah. So is that the same person who is threatened by the idea of God is love and love is God? Mm, That was part of Tyler's question. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was interesting because like, Like, what does that mean to say, like, God is love, but love is not God? Like, why would you make that distinction? Mm. Like, especially because, okay, so I was just thinking about this as you guys were talking, like, Jesus making this connection between the, the Shema, the love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, the, the like classic Israel recitation, I almost said catchphrase, (laughs) and I decided that was a little too casual. Catchphrase. (laughs) And then like him making the connection to love your neighbor as yourself, which a lot of the rabbis at the time and since then argue that that is what the Torah is saying, like distilled. And so like him making this connection also in line with like a lot of the new Testament arguing that like love looks like action, like faith without works is dead. And, and then like, so there's this like very like real tangible on the ground love speak. And then there's this like really abstract or as Stephen would say, squishy love speak where like, you're like talking about loving God and loving Jesus, but like all of a sudden it's like not tangible anymore. And you're like kind of divorcing it from like actions towards the everyday person, even though Jesus straight up said like, whatever you do to the least of these you've done to me. And Mm. Jesus is making that connection to loving other people is loving God and loving God is means loving other people. And so for like a Christian to like make this weird abstract distinction between like God is love, but love is not God. Like, what does that even mean? Like, what are you trying to accomplish there? Like, are you trying to monopolize on the experience of love? Like, are you trying to say that, like, non-Christians cannot experience mutual, wonderful, beautiful love? Because I don't see how you could. Uh, I mean, there's, I, I have to imagine that there's like a, like a way to argue, you know, like theologians will talk about like prevenient grace versus like sanctifying grace or whatever. I bet they could probably talk about love in the same way of like, yeah, I mean, there's the love that sustains everything and that like doesn't throw us to hell immediately, but Mm. it's not the fullness of love unless it's experienced like in the spirit or Mm -hmm. whatever, Mm -hmm. which I hope you can hear all the sarcasm dripping off that sentence in my tone of voice. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because I definitely think that is a, problematic in a few ways but i often wonder because i think a lot of us learned in high school geometry that squares are rectangles but not all rectangles are squares and we like to think of so many things in those kind of logical terms oh yeah Mm -hmm. yeah you know of like god is love but love is not god (laughs) god is rectangle but rectangle is not god (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a good point but like even then, what do they mean? Like when somebody when like a Christian tries to monopolize the conversation on love, like whether it's the definition or God's relation to love, 
Like, for instance, I don't feel like I've ever heard a Christian, if someone says, like, I love hamburgers, I don't think I've ever heard a Christian, like, question someone's experience and be like, no, you don't. I, I mean, I guess I maybe heard someone, like, try to draw distinctions between types of love. But, like, nobody, like, tries to deny, like, your experience of, like, no, I love this thing. Mm, like, yeah. even though I'm, I'm, like, choosing to use that word, like, I know what it means. Yeah, that is like a... you know you know someone's not saying I am romantically interested in this hamburger. Context clues. <laughs> so I don't yeah, I don't know what people are trying to argue when they say like love is not God. It feels like they're trying to make a different argument. Well, I mean, I think in a way they're just afraid of anything that smells of universalism. Maybe. And that love wherever it appears cannot be God because God isn't really Muslim or Hindu or, you know? Uh, yeah. What do you think the relationship is? This might be too big of a question for the end, but what do you think the relationship is between love and acceptance? Because like we were talking about like understanding and care. Uh, I think it's big. I don't... When you asked that question, my mind immediately went to what's the relationship between, because this is a famous thing that Christians like to fight about is what's the relationship between love and justice? Like, sure, Ooh. God is loving, but also mm-hmm. God is just. And it's the but also that always bothers me because it's like, why can't we be enacting justice in love, though? You know? Yeah. You should yeah. say that to Dixie sometime. I love you, but I'm also just. <laughs> I'm in justice with you. Ooh. <laughs> oh. Oh. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Mm-hmm-hmm. Sorry. I didn't want to derail your question, but that that's you know. No, that, that is re- a good that is a good one too. The relationship of those two things, I think, is usually presented in like a dichotomous way. I'm just not convinced they that they deserve to be, you know. Because on the note of acceptance, my gut is just like, yes, love is acceptance. I guess that's why it made me think of justice is because like to me, to love an LGBTQ sibling is to accept them as who they are and affirm their identity. And others would say that's not loving because like their lifestyle is unjust or whatever. That's interesting because I was actually going to go a different direction with that. I was going to say like, sometimes I think love means caring for someone. Mm -mm, I'm going to be careful how I say this. (laughs) Sometimes I think love means caring for someone despite their actions. And sometimes that means like, like you don't, mm, how am I trying to say this? Yeah, I think it's like, it's like uh, acceptance for the sake of acceptance or like, accepting to avoid confrontation or like enabling Mm, something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Or like sometimes I feel like the thing that we're like, we like keep coming back to here is like, what is loving to do? Right. And like, sometimes love is acceptance. And honestly, sometimes it's not like, sometimes it's loving for you to walk away from something. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, walk away from abuse, walk away from, a bad relationship. It's loving to help someone come to terms with their alcoholism mm. and find a way out, you know? Yeah. And but, to be honest, I think that someone who like believes in that, I 
love you, therefore I'm going to tell you you're going to hell. I think that that person believes that they are they like can't accept the fact that you're going to hell. And honestly, props to them for like actually following through on that belief. Like, yeah. sounds like they probably mm. do believe that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. Okay. So, wow. I want to make sure I am extremely careful to not equate like okay it's loving to point or like help someone come to terms or like accept their alcoholism and work on fixing that like i i think the the most generic way to say that it is it is unloving to encourage someone to continue in their sin if that like that's how they would say it i think totally which is explicitly not what i'm saying about lgbtq folks in the sense of like right i i i just think nothing about that identity is actually sinful so but i i really want to be careful not to start equating those because i talked about them side by side yeah i see what you're saying well identity is not the same as behavior yeah identity is not the same as behavior like you're accept accepting someone is not the same as accepting a habit or a behavior sure so well, and that like totally gets back to like concepts of sin and concepts of being, and like I think that that's why like the love conversation like feels too distilled for me. Ooh, yeah. By a lot of Christians, like this, like like just like getting into like the semantics of like the last two minutes, like like Stephen wanting to clarify something that he said, like I said this, not this, and I said this about this, like that's good. And great to do, I think, a lot of the time, because I think that like the language around love gets so choppy on top of people using different definitions. Yeah. And different concepts and like different concepts of concepts that they're using to relate love to. I think that right there, Stephen, uh, is a great example of love, like and being loving is knowing like I'm saying something and I don't want to be mistaken for saying something else. Like I'm, I'm working on, you know, how I, how I say things. There's nothing more loving than saying I'm working on how I see, like how I frame things and how I see the world. And I think the LGBTQ example is great. You know, when someone has pronouns, like using the correct pronouns for that person. And if you make a mistake and you say, I'm really sorry, like I'm, I'm trying to use the pronouns that you would like me to use. Like that is so loving than trying to correct or trying to excuse why you're mispronouncing their pronouns. Um, yeah. Uh, I think when yeah. we show that we are limited and have faults, but we want to try to flourish, like we want to try to get past those, that is loving. And when we have people who are wanting to walk alongside us in those moments, there's nothing more loving than that. Mm. And I think that's what we're ultimately called to do is to say, Hey, we are all struggling. We are all grappling with things and I'm not going to try to guilt you. I'm not going to try to fix you. I'm not going to try to tell you how to be rather. I want to just see you be the best you and I want to be the best me and we can do that in love. We can do that in deep understanding and commitment to one another. And again, that that's beyond being romantic. Oh, you just reminded me of something. Yeah. I think the reason I don't like the idea of love is sacrifice is because I think that 
a better word would be accommodation. Like I'm reminded of like the theological concept of accommodation, like God accommodating mm. uninformed or misinformed beliefs about God in order that it would like draw us closer to God and God's love. Like I think that I absolutely think of love in an accommodation and like a hospitality mm. kind of way. Yeah. Like for instance, with like your example about the pronouns, like I'm sure like someone is listening to this and like totally disagrees about the pronouns thing. But I would argue that regardless of how you personally feel, like if your goal is to love someone, you should think about accommodating them. Yeah. And I don't think that that means accommodating harm or abuse, especially mm -hmm. like something that's immediate. Like if something is a life or death situation, like obviously <laughs> avoid that. But yeah, I think that like for a lot of instances in a day-to-day -day situation, love often looks like accommodation and either helping people get what they need or helping people feel safe or trust. Like I was, I was like thinking about trust too. Oh man. I feel like, oh, I feel like every time we start to say something about love, we just start talking about a different thing to define love. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's because those things define love. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Like love is the, the big, love is the giant Russian nesting doll that's holding all the other nesting dolls together. Like they build and feed into one another. Mm. Now what? <laughs> I love where we've ended here where it's like, Tyler, I don't know if we have an answer for you. <laughs> well, and maybe, I mean, maybe that's how I'm going to close this is maybe we're not meant to come to an answer. Like maybe we are supposed to continue to <laughs> wrestle and understand because if we come to an answer, then we're closing the door on it and say, yep, okay, we figured it out. Leave that alone. Now let's move on to the next thing when we should constantly be working on it and mm. oh, I like that. making sense of it. So Tyler, you're never going to get an answer. So take that. Nice. <laughs> Before we close, uh, we do have some announcements we'd like to get through at the end here. Announcements. I just recently guested on a podcast called The Worship Review, where uh, I sat down with Colin and Tyler over there, and we they got to interview me for a bit, and we talked about Ravel, we talked about No Normal People, and just kind of like how I grew up as a worship leader. And then we reviewed the, the Hillsong song, So Will I, a hundred billion times. That's the subtitle. That's not, we didn't review it. Why did it. you guys have to review it that many times? Yeah. Yeah. We didn't. Okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. But yeah, you a should nice joke. check that out wherever podcasts are sold for free. I think you'd enjoy it. Also, we are rapidly approaching episode 100. So if you've left us a review already, thank you so much. It really means a lot. We read every single one of them. And uh, to the gentleman who very kindly left us a one-star review saying that Unravel would be a better description of what the hosts are doing in their discussions, I will remind you once again, Bernie Sanders meme, insert, that Ravel and Unravel mean the same thing. So I will say you're not incorrect. So thank you. <laughs> So uh, please, uh, we are uh, <laughs> we are rapidly approaching episode 100, and we have a stretch goal of reaching 200 reviews, positive or negative, on Apple Podcasts and 100 reviews on Spotify. So please give us a rating wherever you listen. We really appreciate it. 
Yes, 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 absolutely. Um, my last announcement is that if you want to hear more of the delightful Tyler Talbert, that was uh, his voice was featured here on this episode of Ravel. I released an episode of his own on No Normal People a couple weeks ago, and you could you could listen to a full ninety minutes of Tyler and his fun activities with his band called About Forty One Bears. Ooh. Which is a fantastic band name, and how he's kind of a vigilante gardener in his city. Oh, that's fun. Go listen to that. I'm really excited to hear about that because I kind of want to do some of that myself. Also, his analogy about gardening makes so much sense now. I like that. Yeah, doesn't cool. it? It's almost as if you get to know someone and uh, how they uh, participate in their own lives. You can figure out where they're drawing all their inspiration from and how to love them best. And I okay my closing thought time <laughs> I think we didn't really touch on this but I think that like the act of love helps reveal God in a way that like us doing things in our everyday lives like teaches us about other things and like gives us the words and huh. like cognitive framework to understand life better yeah like through gardening or through reading or whatever I think that the act of love reveals God amen that's my closing thought there it is Emily, would you like to conclude us? Oh, I will sure try uh, to be love, to be in love, acts of love, to be loving. These are all very complicated and messy topics that we are still grappling with. Um, but we are so lucky to be in a community where we are called to be with one another and to be people of love and to be people who show live, breathe, love, and know that love is for everyone and can be about everyone. And it's a beautiful thing and it's a beautiful process. So I just want to say that I love you all uh, and you are worthy and special. And I love that we are able to be in this community together. And welcome to No Normal People. This is a show where we prove that the more you get to know the normal people in your life, you discover that there really are no normal people in your life. You know how there's like famous people in the world that are known very well and how they go on podcasts? Yeah. Well, we don't do that. Marketable names and yeah, audience. Buzzwords, and, buzz yeah, names. Social following. Yeah. And, John yeah. Buzz. And, well, we interview people like your Uncle Terry, who collects model trains. Because he's normal. We'll even interview you, even if you don't have the cool trains that your uncle has. You can email us at nopeoplepod at gmail.com or visit our show page on www.highline.network to sign up to be on the show. And remember, the only normal people you know are the ones you don't know very well. Highline Media Network. Artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.